Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's episode of the podcast, I have Mary Gabriel. We met on a chilly afternoon in Brooklyn to talk about her most recent book, Ninth Street Women, which is about the five painters Lee Krasner, Elaine de Kooning, Grace Hartigan, Joan Mitchell, and Helen Frankenthaler. Now, these were women that changed modern art, and yet many of us don't know their names or don't understand where they fit in all those macho guys who are apparently the ones that change modern art, like Picasso and de Kooning. So what Mary's done is she's rewritten history to include these incredible women. I absolutely love talking to Mary. You'll, you'll get a sense of how passionate we both are about art and the role of artists in society. And I really hope you enjoy this podcast. It's my great pleasure to have Mary Gabriel here today. And we're here to talk about her epic beautiful book. Um, It's the type of book that reminded me why I moved to New York and why artists and creative people I think around the world are drawn to this city. It's called Ninth Street Women, Lee Krasner, Elaine de Kooning, Grace Hartigan, Joan Mitchell and Helen Frankenthaler, Five Painters and the Modern Movement that Changed Modern Art. Welcome to Lit Up. Thank you so much, Angie, for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, we were just talking about we don't know where to start with this (laughs) incredible book. But let's firstly talk about the title of the book, Ninth Street Women, and then maybe we can go back in time to kind of give this context. What was so special about this show in 1951. Yeah. In, yeah, in May 1951, it was it's it's funny, it's a show that in the history of art, we don't really learn about. You know, in the United States, you learn about the Armory show in 1913, which was when European modern art was introduced to American audiences for the first time. But the Ninth Street show was when American modern art was introduced to audiences for the first time. And in in the previous year in 1950, the wider public, the kind of mass publication audience, started waking up to the fact that there were people like Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning working in New York. And um, museums started taking note, and Life magazine and Time magazine, but they were all sort of skeptical and, in fact, critical for many reasons, partly political because it was the beginning of the McCarthy era and anyone who did anything out of the ordinary was was suspect. Um, part of it was because it was just so new, no one could comprehend it. And so the artists found themselves starting to be defined by people who didn't understand them or didn't like them. And so they said, okay, we're going to have our own show. Because at that time, galleries uptown didn't show this work. And in fact, very few, gal- I think there were about four galleries in New York that were showing it. So they said, we're going to get together. They found this great space on 9th Street, an abandoned furniture store in a building that was about to be demolished. And they rented it for a month, cleaned it out, whitewashed it, put up some temporary walls, put in some fantastic lighting. 
um, one light that was hung outside was the kind of light that you'd have on a Hollywood, um, you know, the night of a Hollywood opening. So it really drew attention to the building. And they hung their work. And the work that was in there was extraordinary. It was de Kooning, Pollock, Klein, Rivers, um, sculpture by Ibram Lasau, David Smith. But also among these 72 artists were 11 women. And of those 11 women, I write about five of them. And it was a it was a, a situation where the women were treated absolutely like the men. It was hung by Leo Castelli, who worked for his uh, father-in-law in a in a sweater or t-shirt manufacturing uh, facility in Queens, and uh, he'd had some experience with art in Paris before the war, but he'd never done anything in New York before. So the artists needed a diplomat to help them hang it, so that no one would become annoyed about where their paintings were placed. And Leo volunteered, um, in exchange for which he got a few paintings by these nobodies and uh, started building his own American modern collection, which became the Castelli Gallery. But anyway, these women hung among the men in this show that was the major coming out party for the artists who we know today as household names. And is it true that they could only select one picture Mm. each? Because the space was limited, they could only have one painting. And they wanted small paintings so that everyone could fit. But of these five women I write about, The two youngest, Joan Mitchell and Helen, brought in the biggest paintings. In fact, Helen had the biggest painting in the show. But she had so much courage, you know, she just did it. And they accepted it because it was so good. Well, you mentioned the Second World War, Mm -hmm. kind of prior to the Second World War. How did all these incredible people come to America? Yeah, there were a couple waves of migration. Bill de Kooning arrived before the war, as did Arshil Gorky. So a few of them were already here. But a real massive migration occurred during the war because intellectuals were targeted by the Nazis for a particular persecution because Hitler understood the power of art and that if he wanted to control populations, he had to control the mythology and he had to control the visual visual mythology, which is what art is all about. And so artists literally fled Europe and the only place they were safe was in New York. And so they went through this incredible... Exodus, this network, which I think is fascinating, run by a guy named Varian Fry, who was a a Harvard classmate of the director of the Museum of Modern Art. And so Varian Fry in Marseille ran an underground network helping artists and intellectuals flee Hitler. And then they landed in New York where, where Alfred Barr, the director of the Museum of Modern Art, kind of rescued them, picked them up, and they established themselves all over the city. And then some filtered out into the countryside. So the artists in New York who were struggling to find an identity among themselves suddenly had this wave of really famous artists in their midst, you know, Marcel Duchamp playing chess in Washington Square, André Breton, there's an anecdote where de Kooning sees him fighting a butterfly, you know, in Midtown. And so they're there among them. And so the artists in New York saw that these creatures, these mythical creatures they'd only read about in magazines or seen in museums were actual real men and not women, but real men who who were suffering just as they were. And that gave them the courage to make their own art. And as far as the women go, um, the unfortunate thing that occurred with the arrival of these immigrants is that artistic misogyny also arrived with them. Uh, the biggest sort of influx of artists after the war were the Surrealists, and they came as part of Peggy Guggenheim's group. She had had a gallery uh, in Europe, 
Um, and when she fled through Varian Fry's network to New York, she reestablished the network in New York through a gallery, Art of the Century. Most of them were surrealists. But the surrealists didn't view artist women as equals. They viewed women as muses or um, sex mates or basically property. And that was the first time kind of the ugly underbelly of gender inequality in art arose in New York. And it was a real shock for the women who'd been working inequality with men since the Works Progress Administration before the war. It also sounded like Peggy Guggenheim wasn't a particular advocate of women either. Isn't it funny because Lee Krasner in particular, you know, called her a misogynistic bitch. She had sport, you know, spared no words in describing Peggy. But the fact of the matter is when you look at Peggy's shows, she actually showed a lot of women. And that's why I, I never understood where that um, reputation came from. She showed a particular group of women, not Lee, not Elaine, not Helen, not Grace. Um, she showed surrealist women who she knew in Europe. And she also showed kind of women on the fringes of the art world. Um, but she did show women, and I've never understood where that came from, where, where that reputation came from. It must have existed because it's something that's followed her to today, to our conversation today. But I don't know. But I don't know. I mean, I wonder if I've absorbed it through Yeah, wrong, I think it could be. Could be misinformation as well. Be. Exactly. I think it could be. There's so much of that misinformation that we just take for granted. But then when you scratch the surface a little bit, you see it's not true. She even had a, a show that was exclusively women. And in it were women European artists and also New Yorkers. Virginia Admiral, who was the actor Robert De Niro's mother, was a very you know, great painter in those days. She was part of the New York circle. She had a show at Peggy's. Hedda Stern, who was a Romanian refugee, arrived in 1941. She she was in Peggy's show. And so I never quite understood where that came from. But, you know, Lee, who was a contemporary and who knew Peggy well, you know, that thought of her as, you know, horribly anti-woman or very uncharitable to her fellow women. So there must have been some truth to it. Well, one anecdote I enjoyed, but not for Lee's sake, was yeah. when they asked Peggy to officiate their wedding. Yes. And what did she say? She, she said, aren't you married enough? That was her first response. And then she decided she had a very important lunch engagement she couldn't break when she found out that the other witness was going to be a woman named Mae Tabak, who she didn't really like. And uh, But Peggy, yeah, was just brutal where Lee was concerned. Which is funny because they were both working toward the same goal, which was to promote Jackson Pollock. I mean, both of the women had one one goal in mind, and that was to promote this man who they both thought was really, you know, tremendous. And Peggy said, you know, he turned out to be the greatest artist since Picasso. Another anecdote, I'm wondering if I've kind of, if it's lodged mm -hmm. correctly, mm -hmm. because I am obsessed with Mondrian yes. and the fact that he, I mean, because I have always looked at the, you know, Midnight Boogie Woogie and all mm -hmm. these fabulous paintings. Mm -hmm. I knew he must have been in New York. Yeah. But actually, until I had read your book, I didn't really understand that he was walking down the street. Exactly. And not only that, he had his one and only solo show in New York City. Isn't that amazing? A man like Mondrian, and he died shortly after that. And he escaped the war. Uh, he went a different route. He went up through London and came over. And he absolutely fell in love with New York. As you can imagine, you know, looking at his art, it makes sense. Uh, a landscape for him was all about right angles, and that's what he found here. And the, one of my favorite anecdotes is that when he moved into an apartment in New York, it had too many curves, so he made 
uh, angles, right angles out of cardboard so that he could be living among them, just like his paintings. And he had two vices that he hid from people. One was that he drank coffee, and the other was that he liked to dance. And he had jazz records in his studio that he danced to barefoot. And it's just such a wild notion, isn't it? It's but he gorgeous. and Lee would go dancing together. And, and you know, she, he was a crazy dancer. She said he danced kind of up and down, very staccato, no matter the music. Um, but she loved it, and so they'd go dancing together. And did Mondrian tell Peggy Guggenheim that he, that he liked... Pollock's work. Yeah, he was really the one, and this is something I couldn't, I couldn't verify or I couldn't pin down. But I think it makes sense. Lee was really introduced Pollock to everyone when she met him. He was a no one in the art world. Um, he was a student of Thomas Hart Benton, who, you know, while a great painter, was not a modern painter. And so Lee made it her mission to introduce Pollock to everyone. Mondrian was a very important person in her in her life. I cannot imagine that she didn't introduce Pollock to Mondrian because Lee and Mondrian were in the same group shows. They kind of traveled in the same circles. In any case, when Peggy had her first show with Americans, um, it was a spring salon, she assembled this incredible group of judges to select the work for it. Marcel Duchamp and Mondrian were two of them. And Peggy didn't really like Pollock's work but she, she kept finding Mondrian standing in front of one of them. And she'd come back and every once in a while she'd comment, you know, this is terrible, isn't it? It's so chaotic. It's, there's no structure. You know, I think it's a terrible piece. And Mondrian didn't say much. And every time she came back and he hadn't moved a muscle, finally he said, I think this is the best. This might be the very best thing I've ever seen in America. And those simple words from a man who spoke very, very little, you know, were powerful. And so she put... Pollock in the show. But I, I never really knew if Mondrian knew who he was talking about because he'd met Jackson or if if it was just truly a reaction to the work. And it could have been both. From reading the book, I get the sense that Elaine de Kooning and Lee Krasner were more so peers than yes. the other three who mm -hmm. were younger coming mm -hmm. up. So when did they first... Un get to know one another and what was their relationship like? Lee and Elaine? Yeah. Lee arrived on the scene in 1929. Elaine was kind of in the periphery until 1939 when she moved in with Bill de Kooning. They met after that and Elaine and Lee were never close. There were a number of reasons. Um, they should have been because they had all the same sensibilities. You know, they were dedicated to art. They were dedicated to the most advanced art. They were dedicated to promoting these men in their lives who they both believed were geniuses. But that might have actually been the source of their antagonism because it was a very small pool of people struggling for recognition and gallery representation. As I said before, there were only about four galleries showing people at the time that Lee and Elaine met, there was maybe only two galleries showing advanced art. So each of them in promoting their husbands would have been competing against one another. And then personally, they weren't that similar. Lee was very kind of um, hard-nosed, aggressive, um, you know, a wonderful woman, very funny, but um, a completely different style than Elaine. Elaine was absolutely, you know, one of these people who glides through life and brings everyone along with her because it's all such great fun. And uh, Lee's experience had been growing as she was an adult during the Depression. So she really had this sense of struggling 
um, for any kind of material comfort, which she rarely had. Elaine had been a, a teenager during the Depression, living with a family that wasn't that affected by it. So she never suffered materially. So her whole attitude toward life was different. Life, life was, you know, a great lark, you know, a great wondrous party, she always called it, you know, a 10-year party. Um, so they didn't get along that well, but they did, they were in the same circles for their entire lives and were in and out of their lives. And I did come across some anecdotes because once again, that version that I'm telling you mm. that they were antagonistic toward one another is the accepted story. But I also find anecdotes that for in people's interviews or in their writings of seeing Lee and Elaine together, you know, that they were walking down the street together as friends and how powerful they were together and how this one woman, Elise Asher, arrived in the scene in 1951 and she saw Lee and Elaine together and she said, I didn't know what to do, you know, in front of these powerful women who were so in the center and so so part of all, you know, the scene. Um, and so I think that um, it could be that the actual history, in actuality, they were closer than we've been than the stories we've been handed down mm. because we've been told their stories through, through the, the lens of men. Of, of yeah. men, yeah, and through the stories of their husbands. So. I tried as much as possible to put them in the room together when I knew they were there. There's a photograph of them at MoMA where they're, you know, talking to each other intently and and I and I'm sure there was a respect for one another. Lee more than Elaine, you know, kind of took shots at at Elaine whenever she could. Um but I think that um I have no doubt because they were both such serious women and serious artists that there was an underlying respect. All of these women seem to have very strong feelings about having children and yes. the fact that children will ruin their lives as yes. artists. Yes. And is it Grace has a child? Yes. I feel like in this moment, you're probably going to be yes. asked this question a lot, um, but it was such a conscious choice for them yes. that seemed to come quite naturally. Yeah. What was it like researching that and kind of coming to those conclusions yeah. yourself? It was so... the the. The attitude among all five of the... Well, actually, Joan wanted a child. I'll get, oh, I'll get to that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, Elaine and Lee had... Elaine, Lee, and Helen never expressed in any way a desire to have a child. Um, and I think for Elaine and Lee, it was partly because of the um, the way they lived. They were so poor. I mean, the, the poverty and the 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 lack of all things uh, that would provide any comfort whatsoever is really shocking. I mean, even as I wrote about it, Lee and, and Pollock, for example, out at Springs didn't have central heat. They didn't have hot water. Um, they they lived in, you know, the most primitive, they didn't have a car, you know, in the winter. And, you know, you know what Long Island winters are like. I mean, they can be really brutal. They, they rode bicycles. So to inject a child into that poverty when it was already, they were already struggling to try to create art. And Lee was trying to struggle, was struggling to try to control Pollock, who was, you know, like living with a constant hurricane. Um, I think that for her, it was an impossibility. Elaine had come to the conclusion, and I think it was a really there was a really great anecdote where she described when she could when she decided she couldn't have a child. She she uh, was given that a friend of hers said, "Would you take care of my baby for the weekend?" And Elaine was thrilled because the baby was so cute, and she played That's with right. it and cooed. And but Elaine realized that 
the entire weekend, her mind was on the baby, and she couldn't work. It, it, every time she started working, she'd think, was the baby okay? Is, yeah, it, is it breathing? Is it too quiet? Yeah. And um, so she realized at the end of that weekend, and it was a very good lesson for her, that she couldn't be a painter and a mother because her, her, her attention would be divided, and it would always go to the child. And so she, they both had to make a decision. I think in Lee's case, it was Art and Pollock that told her she couldn't be a mother. In Elaine's case, it was her work that told her she couldn't be a mother. With Grace, she had a son, um, and her path into this whole scene was very, very unusual and also really incredible considering how quickly she succeeded and how well she actually did. She had a son when she was 19, uh, and that same year, she discovered drawing. Her husband was going to be drafted, and he said, you've got to do something. And so they took a night drawing class in Los Angeles, you know, which is a crazy way to start. And Grace said as soon as she picked up a pencil, she started sweating and crying and, and was really struggling with it. And she didn't know where this emotion came from because she'd never done anything artistic before. And she kept drawing on her own. And after her son was born, her focus was not on this new baby, but it was on trying to learn how to create. And when she moved back to New Jersey after he was drafted, her attention was always divided, but she was sort of sleepwalking through her role of as, you know, war wife, daughter-in-law, and mother. And where her heart was and her mind was, was on art. How do I do it? How do I become an artist? And when she finally saw Jackson Pollock's first drip show in New York in January of 1948... She was so moved. I mean, the ground shifted for her when she saw something that new and that powerful that someone had gone so far out on a limb to create something that had never existed before. She knew that's what she needed to do. And in order to do that, she had to do it alone. She couldn't bring a child along. And once again, it's partly because she needed to focus all of her attention on her work, but also because the way she would have to live in order to create would not be any way to bring up a child. She moved to a loft on the Lower East Side, no heat, no electricity. Um, she was basically camping with Al Leslie. And, you know, you can't have a, a child there. So, so that was her decision. Um, Helen was such a consummate artist from the very start that in none of her letters did I ever come across a reference to it. And by the time, and plus she was so young that she, of all of them, had the most time to make that decision. And by the time she was 29, when she might have actually started thinking about that, she married Bob Motherwell, who had two young daughters. So she, she had a ready-made mm. family. So that decision was made for her. And she always thought of Lee's and Jeannie Motherwell as her children. So, so um, And then Joan, the tragically always wanted what she called one small child. I don't know if she ever wanted that child to actually <laughs> grow out of infancy, but she wanted that baby. And her, the men she hooked up with were one after the other a disaster. And so that never occurred. So that's a long answer to your question. But the, the main thing is, is that they all believed that creating and childbirth were sort of one and the same thing and that you can't, for them, they couldn't do both. The other side is social, that in those days, to be a woman artist was already difficult enough. For them to be also a mother would mean that no one would take them seriously as an artist. It would, it would be, it would be a, it's a damning label for a woman artist in the 1940s and 50s. So it was a really difficult decision and one that each step they took along this path toward be becoming a, a professional artist, 
was one step away from traditional society, which in the 50s was about motherhood, being a good wife, you know, being a woman in the home, providing for their, their husband and children. And it, it was a path of no return, really. Once they took those steps, they couldn't go back. There's a great quote from Bill de Kooning, here we go, where he said, um, what we need is a good wife. Yeah. Which I thought was so funny because yeah. wasn't he, he thought that once they got married, Elaine would change. Yeah. She refused to ever cook anything. Yeah, she read him cookbooks and called oh, that I dinner. Lo- Isn't that great? I love that because they had no money. No money, yeah. Oh, I thought that was so romantic, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and they would imagine what they'd eat. Yeah. And that was it. So now to these these other three, the mm. younger ones, mm. actually, because people are listening and it's so interesting to talk about art, but we can't, we're not seeing it. Mm. I'm wondering, could you explain a little the visuals of each of these three younger artists? Mm. Yeah. And they're so very different. Mm. That's the thing that's so fascinating about all of these women. They're so very different. Um, visually, Grace's paintings began was completely abstract. She was making marks that were, didn't really look like de Kooning. They didn't really look like Pollock, but she was struggling to find her way into that, into that ab, non-objective abstraction through them until 1952 when she realized she can't start at where they arrived. You know, they had both studied art and understood it. And in fact, all of her elders, the first generation had, she realized she didn't know the history of art. So she had no, she thought she had no right to their vision. So she went back in 1952 and studied the old masters with Larry Rivers. They'd go to the Metropolitan Museum and wander around and she'd come home and try to reinterpret what she saw in the museum on her canvas. And what came out, Grace used figures and she used city, city landscapes and city life as her inspiration. And it wasn't that she painted those scenes, it's that she incorporated through the traditional abstract expressionist markings those images. And so you'll, you'll find yourself looking through dense, kind of thick paint, looking at something that may or may not be an awning on a, on a, um, on a shop on Grand Street, or it may or may not be a, a person standing, in a, you know, standing still in a costume who was probably Frank O'Hara, who was her favorite muse. So, so Grace was very much, she was one of the first to break out of the abstract expressionist mold and actually incorporate things and people in her work. Helen was the one who actually made, I think, the, the greatest breakthrough of all of these people. In fact, she spawned a, a school of painting, the Colorfield School. In 1952, um, after working her way very much and very deliberately through Gorky and de Kooning, uh, she... Um, had been painting in Nova Scotia and she came back and had all these, she'd been doing watercolors, small watercolors. And she came back and put a 10 foot canvas on the floor, unprimed canvas and thinned her paint to a liquid in in pails and coffee cans and poured it. And so the paint actually like watercolor would was absorbed by the canvas and spread of its own volition and overlapped with other colors. And she had no idea what she was going for, but it was exactly what she wanted. And when she finished, she realized this was it. And there were a few lines on it, but the lines didn't define anything. They were kind of just ribbons of, of, of a line throughout. And uh, so this was the painting, that painting was called Mountains and Sea. And from that moment, that was what Helen's work was about. It wasn't painting on the canvas so much as painting in the canvas. Joan 
Interestingly enough, and she hated anyone who would, would say this, her background was in figure skating, which is so odd. She was a champion figure skater on the national circuit. And when she when she switched from figure skating to focus entirely on painting, her marks were very much like the marks that a skate would make on the ice at the beginning of her painting career. And so they're very jagged and fast and they explode, but they're also contained at the same moment. She said she likes painting because it's in motion, but perfectly still. But in 1954, she did the painting that I think introduces the mature Joan Mitchell. And it's after she, in 1953, she had a really difficult year where she um, was engaged. She was involved with a painter named Mike Goldberg. They had a really um, traumatic relationship, very physically violent and emotionally abusive. And Joan tried to kill herself. But arising out of that, she did the painting that was the first real, I think, Joan Mitchell painting was called City Landscape. And it's absolutely a beautiful bouquet of movement and color and and dense, rich paint that she applied, though it looks like someone went up and, you know, and did the strokes in a matter of seconds. They're so fast. She applied each one mark by mark. That's her technique. She would paint one mark, walk to the back of her studio, look at it, go back up and make another mark, which is so unbelievable because I don't know if you know, I mean, if you from looking at the yeah. work, isn't it hard to imagine that you she did it that way? You kind of think she's like, slashing, you know, yeah, yeah, real swashbuckler stuff. But it was just the opposite. So, so that, that, but they were, they were each so different and yet each contributed to this abstract expression of narrative in such an important way. And it seemed like they were friendly, yeah. but I did read that Joan said that Helen's paintings were the tampon yeah. paintings. But you know, Joan... They're just making yeah, fun yeah, of yeah. each oh, other. Oh, Joan, absolutely. I, I really came to the conclusion that the more antagonistic Joan was towards someone, actually the more she liked <laughs> them. You know, because she was... That was her sense of humor. She just, you know, would say anything. The more outrageous, the better. Say anything to anyone. Offend anyone, you know, that she could. But, but basically... Um, she had an absolute respect to the core of anyone who was this creature called an artist. And I'm sure she would have respected Helen. And in fact, when Joan first moved to France in 1955, her first trip, her first kind of footstep into France, um, where she eventually moved, it was Helen who threw her a Bon Voyage party. So, right. so they were friends. And Grace and Helen were extremely close. And Joan and Elaine were extremely close. When, when Grace first, I'm sorry, when... Joan first moved to France. She wanted Elaine to come with her. So um, they were all in and out of each other's lives. And, you know, I think sometimes people think women have to form a sisterhood. You know, they have to form kind of a clique. But we don't expect men to do that. And and these women were behaved just as men would. You know, they knew each other. They drank together. They went to the same parties. But they didn't have to move as kind of a little group, you know, get in yes. the minivan together and go to the next party. So. Well, and also, I mean, when you think of your female friends, yeah. you come in and out of each other's yeah, exactly. lives. And you'd kind of accept that. Yeah, exactly. Like I can imagine walking down the street with a woman I think is fabulous and then seeing her three years later. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, you pick up where you left exactly, off. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I used to think Clement Greenberg was this evil figure. And yeah. I don't know where I picked that up yeah. from along the way. And I was wondering, because, you know, in The Fountainhead? Yes. Know, and I saw that that was written in 1943. I mean, I'm not a fan of that book yeah. now. You know, yeah. you are when you're 16. Yeah, when yeah. you're 16, you're yeah. like, oh. But I always somehow kind of merged 
Tui, you know, the yeah. nasty yeah, critic yeah. with Clement Greenberg. Yeah. And I wondered if there was any possibility of that. Well, them I think... being, you know, one being influenced by the other. I don't know. I don't think so because I think he... He, is, um, he, quite he, right. he didn't really become a well-known... I mean, actually, 1943... He was writing in pretty highbrow journals, but he didn't really become Clement Greenberg mm. until more mid-50s and after the war. By 1948, everyone hung on his, on his every word. Um, he, was, he had been a uh, you know, um, customs house official in the you know, port of New York, and he met Lee, and Lee introduced him to Hans Hoffman and the whole painting scene. And um, from there, you know, Clem was a brilliant man, and he was looking for a way into it. He liked to paint. He was a painter, but I think he probably didn't have the confidence to call himself a painter and try to inject himself on the scene that way. And so he was more comfortable with words, so he became a critic. And he really grew up alongside them, his vocabulary, along with their painterly vocabulary. And I think this idea of Clem, sort of the nasty critic, arose by the end of the 1950s because he... At, by, mid, by the mid-50s, he had outgrown the abstract expressionists and was now championing a painting that had less gesture in it. And so a lot of the abstract expressionists resented his, you know, he had gone from calling them the greatest to, to basically saying, don't look at them anymore. And in fact, he did that with Joan in a very hurtful way. In the 60s, in the early 60s, she had a gallery in Paris run by an American and who had gave her an annual contract, $10,000 to work with, which in those days was a big deal. Um, and Clem said, get rid of that gestural horror. And that was it. The man dropped Joan. And so that's where that reputation came from. But Clem, through the 40s and in the early 50s, was a really pivotal figure. And he was like the megaphone broadcasting to the world, you know, look at what's happening here. Look at what's happening here. This is very, very important stuff. And her, Helen had a relationship with him when, what, was she 19? And I know, I think she was 20, 20 when she first arrived, yeah. Yeah, that was her first boyfriend on the scene. And so, you know, she found herself from being fresh out of Bennington to being in the heart of, you know, the most incredible painting revolution America had ever experienced. But sometimes people say, well, that's why she is who she is and that's why she, you know, was allowed to be in that scene, but that's not the case at all, at all because if she had been just kind of a, pardon the expression, a bimbo on an intellectual's arm, she would have fallen by the wayside when they broke up. But after she and Clem broke up in 1955, people actually gravitated to Helen and sort of um, uh, discounted Clem, left Clem abandoned. In fact, he said, you know, where did everyone go? I feel so alone. She was a powerhouse in her own right and really... Clem was a nice introduction, but for, as soon as the door opened, she went off on her own and, and was respected on her, on her own right. Well, let's go to Lee Krasner mm -hmm. now, because so much of her life was devoted to Pollock, mm -hmm. or so much of their time together, but mm -hmm. actually it was after he died that mm -hmm. her work took on mm -hmm. a life of its own, yes. and she was, was alive for another 26 or 27 yes. years. Yeah. I mean... It's just an interesting thing to... She was such an advocate for him. Mm -hmm. um, do you think she, it was just because she loved him and she thought he was that talented and her work kind of just 
lived alongside of his. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, it's funny because that was something I struggled with at the beginning of this book. And I spoke with a woman named Helen Harrison who runs the Paula Krasner house out in uh, Springs. And I I was having this same discussion with her. And she said, you know, Lee never abandoned her art. You know, the art was, she continued, she plugged along. What she abandoned was her career for Pollock. And that's very interesting because artists, um, if you're a real artist, you're going to continue working. Nothing's going to stop you. Lee didn't just promote Pollock because she loved him. I think she might have loved him because she thought he was such a fantastic artist. Lee, before she met Pollock, was a main figure in the in the art movement in New York for about ten years prior to meeting him, and she was called. She was credited with having the best eye in America for the new art. She was absolutely, you know, brilliant when it came to understanding art and knowing what was good. Um, and when she saw Pollock's work, she said that it was as alive to her as Mondrian's had been, as Matisse, as Picasso. You know things shifted for her visually when she saw him. It was so new and so profound. And that was that was her first encounter with him. And you can't I you know, you can't separate did she love him and then mm-hmm. like his work? I think she she loved him because of his work and then she grew to love the man. And plus he just was so vulnerable. You know, he needed protection and Lee was so strong. You know, if in, in nor- normal relationships in the 40s and 50s, the man would be the strength and the woman supposedly was the little woman who needed protecting. In their relationship, it was the other way around. Lee was the strength and Pollock was the one who needed protection and she was there to provide it as she would a national treasure because he was so important to art and, and art to Lee was everything. You know, it was what she, why she woke up in the morning and, and why she conducted her life the way she did. And so um, she also, focusing on Pollock's work, allowed her to experiment with her own out of the limelight because she had a big struggle to go from what she had learned as a student, both as a classical student and as a student of Cubism, to this new thing which t- Pollock taught her and which they were all grappling with, that you look inside yourself for inspiration. And where do you go? How do you find that? And let's say once you understand who you are, how do you translate that to a canvas? I mean, it's a huge leap, and it took Lee a long time. So I think she was, in a way, it might have been comforting for her to just step back, let him go forward, and and she could find herself on canvas. Well, and didn't she paint gray slabs for For three years? years? Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? No, I can't, and she didn't give up. Isn't that amazing? Slab after slab. (laughs) And can you imagine the joy when it started finally coming through? Yeah, it was really great. So, But you're right that after Pollock died, her work changed immensely. And when I first saw it, before I really understood her or him, um, I saw it and I, I, I thought, oh, well, that just shows what relief she experienced after his death because before her work had a lot of darkness in it and after he died, it suddenly burst forth in incredible colors. It was very... There was a lot of nature in it, identifiable nature, and a lot of women, a woman's figures, you know, breasts and wombs and vines and flowers. And I thought, wow, you know, it doesn't take a psychoanalyst to, you know, look at this and see what's happening here. She's blossoming. But she said quite the opposite, that she was so traumatized while she was doing those works that sometimes she was crying, you know, because of his death, she was still so hurt that she couldn't even see the painting through the tears. I mean, this poor woman, you know, what she'd been through. But... Her, her paintings exploded in every way in size and, and content and, and in styles. She changed many times through the years. There's a wonderful anecdote, which I think goes back many years from when we're talking about now, but 
to how the painters came to these big canvases that there was just cheap canvas from a... A A supply store, yeah. Can you just say a little bit about that and then how that then led to the kind of paint and material you need? Yeah, when they all, they all sort of, I mean, and, and they did talk, they met and talked about art. This group met and talked about art every single night at a place called the Waldorf Cafeteria until 1949 when they had a club. But but before the club, in, when they were still at the Waldorf, you know, they would they would discuss, you know, this painting and the, their own individual struggles and they'd put themselves in the context of the history of art, you know, what do we have that the French don't have? How can we make an American art? And um, and it just so happened that after the war, a, a supply house had a lot of linen uh, left over and they had rolls and rolls of it that they wanted to get rid of. And so they were selling reams of, of linen to paint on for, you know, $25. And these artists each would put down $5 and have their name on a little tag until they could finally afford to buy the whole roll. And so then they had cheap, great material to paint on, you know, yards and yards of it. And in order to experiment, they started using really kind of bad, you know, poor materials, not traditional artist materials like cans of paint or radiator paint or automobile paint, anything they could get a hold of, just so they could free themselves up because as they're doing this struggle, as they're trying to find themselves on canvas, they couldn't afford to use traditional artist paints because one One brushstroke, yeah, yeah, I mean, a tube of paint could go in one brushstroke. And so they just had fun. They just let it go. And, And by 1948... Uh, Jackson had had his breakthrough. De Kooning had had his breakthrough. Franz Klein made his. They were well on their way. I just love those moments. I mean, I had never... You pinpointed potentially this chance that allowed the expansion of so Mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Robert Motherwell called it that they went from creating... um, Oh, what did he call it? He said, you know, kind of a drawing room scene out of the French easel tradition to creating Stonehenge. And with that, the other the other big moment for size, for scale, mm-hmm. was Pollock's first show because he was the first one to have a show with really big eight-foot paintings. They weren't his gigantic 18-foot paintings yet, but eight feet to them was still a very big painting. And seeing what he was able to do on that size opened it up for everybody. And after that, they couldn't shrink their work again because there was so much to say that they just exploded, and they all did. And around this time, was MoMA kind of really established at this point? It was. It had it, it opened in 1929, and the director was Alfred Barr. And, and his assistant was Dorothy Miller, who I dedicate a lot of space to because she's been lost in history, and she was so critical to the, uh, to the development of the American art movement and to the exhibition of their, of their works. Uh, she was the one who was responsible at MoMA for organizing shows of American artists, which she did about every three years. And they caused all kinds of alarm in among critical circles, among trustees of museums, because she was, which, you know, just didn't care who she put in. She put in only the most cutting edge and people were shocked by what they saw. And uh, so, yes, MoMA was absolutely critical. And not only did they sh- show these artists in New York, but they started mounting shows that traveled around the mm. world, which introduced these artists to international audiences. And that was extremely important for for the recognition, you know, for the rest of the world to realize that the center of, of the art, modern art world had moved from Paris to New York for the first time in history. 
that just feels like such an exciting moment, doesn't it? Can you imagine? It? Yeah. Also, I just, you know, when I thought of New York as a child or teenager, I would imagine Soho and downtown. Yeah. And what do you imagine? You imagine the artists in their lofts. Yeah, just this. Yeah. And that was what it, yeah, what was yeah. happening. There was one of the older ladies I interviewed. Her, her name was Ernestine Lassau. She was Elaine's best friend. She was 100 years old when I interviewed her. She's dead now. But um, she said, you know, in reading the books about this period and seeing the Pollock movie, which is, you know, good. Ed Harris was great. Um, she said one of the things that people never understood was how much fun we had. Mm. And, you know, they were so poor, but they made their own fun. And you can imagine how they'd have to because they'd be in their studios all day working, struggling, struggling, struggling with no one wanting their work, at, you know, no one looking at it except each other. They themselves having no idea where they were going in their work. So they'd go out at night and they would just, you know, drink and have a great time. You'd have to blow off steam that way. And they were such a supportive community. And I think that's something that's so vital for artists today to understand, that if you want to take those chances, you need feedback. And the only feedback you're going to get at that very critical moment of creation is from other artists. Well, and didn't Elaine say it was the 10-year, the decade yeah, of the, just the best party Right, ever. 1949 to 1959. So at the moment that everybody made their breakthrough on canvas was the start of this 10-year party. And what happened to end that for her, do you think? Well, for them all, unfortunately, it was in the mid-50s, the art market, you know, the art business took over the art world. You know, the artists had previously been the art world, but suddenly money started flowing in because um, there was, it, it started in a way that history always does, you know, a tiny change in the situation. The government had instituted a new tax policy that allowed collectors to take a tax deduction if they bought art and donated it to a museum. So suddenly there was an incentive beyond the love of art for people to buy art. And then museums that wanted to buy the art but couldn't afford it would start directing dealers to sell the art they wanted. So it became not collecting and investing in art went from being kind of an act of love. You know, I can't live without that painting. I want it to hang on my wall to being, becoming a shrewd business move. You know, if I buy that, I know MoMA wants it. I can write it off on my taxes and eventually donate it. So the whole mm. idea of art appreciation changed. And by the late 50s, auctions had become high-class entertainment. The first auction, I think, was in London in 58 or 59. And, you know, people dressed up in evening wear for it. It became like like a casino, you know, like roulette. And when two million was spent on a painting, people <gasps> gasped, you know, oh, how bold, you know, that person is as bold as the artist who created it. So it the, the entire scene changed and this movement that had been sort of renegade became mainstream and it killed it. And then pop came along and then, you know, art became fashion and mm. so, in the 60s, I mean, it was dizzying. I can't keep up with the number of movements. You know, every two years there was another ism and collectors went with whatever was new. What new, what became, what was newest became what was best. And so a lot of these abstract expressionists were lost historically. You know, we maybe know four or five, but there were among, you know, there were probably 40 men working who were really excellent artists and probably anywhere between 10 and 30 women who were tremendous, but they were all kind of lost by the wayside. And how do you think, I mean, there's a dizzying statistic 
that it was I'm just the percentage of women in MoMA's collection or the percentage of female painters I think in 1972 was was it 10% if that yeah and then in 2018 it's 11% I know it's amazing and not only that but of those people how many are shown you know they might be in the collection but how many are exhibited it's 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 really disheartening and you can't you know sometimes people will say well you know if the work isn't any good you know or, or these these people these artists aren't well known so um, they don't draw the crowds. We're not going to show them. But unless people see the work, they're never going to become household names. They're never. They, it's someone I spoke with at Christie's recently had a really great observation. She said that these women will only become part of the dialogue if there's a foundational change in the way art is taught. You know, if women are injected into their rightful place, not imposed upon the history of art, but actually put in place where they should be because they were working at the time. They were part of the scene. They were well-respected. Grace Hardigan was the second-generation abstract expressionist artist in the 50s. You won't find her anywhere in the history of art. So until they're actually reinserted where they were during their lifetimes, audiences today, art appreciation today, won't acknowledge them. And um, so there needs to be a change from the very from the very bottom, from the way we learn about art to the, what galleries show, to what museums show, to what people buy. I mean, I was thinking of myself growing up in Sydney and studying art all through high school and the textbooks that you rely on. And, of course, Elaine de Kooning probably had a mention. If but I, it was all, you know, de Kooning's women, you yes. know, and all... And I was thinking back, going, how did I not know about these women? Well, that's how this book started. I mean, they could have changed my life Exactly, and that's exactly why I wrote this book, because when I first met Grace Hardigan in 1990 to do a story about her, I was working as a journalist, and, and she told me, you know, this wild story. And she wasn't saying, you know, oh, and yes, we, we women did this. She just mentioned women because they were part of it. And I had exactly that reaction. Why haven't I heard of these people? Or why didn't I know any of this? Because when I was an art student, if I had, there were a lot of boys who thought, you know, they were Jackson Pollock or one kid even called himself Pablo. You know, I mean, it was ridiculous. You know, they could be little macho people with their <laughs> cigarettes hanging out of their mouths. But there was nobody for me to look up to. There was nobody who I could say, well, I can be like her. I can be a painter. You know, there's a there's a pathway for me to be a professional artist. It's not even being a success. It's just knowing that there is someone who's done it before is really encouraging and important. And they didn't exist, and yet they did exist. We just didn't know about them. And so that's really one of the main reasons I wanted to write this book. And also here are five of them. Yeah who are all so incredibly different and have mm -hmm. different ideas for their life. Mm -hmm. And there must be many more, but mm -hmm. even having these five mm -hmm. would have been helpful. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I know, and they're, they're really inspirational. And they also, the other thing that strikes me when I was writing this, they were so advanced socially and artistically, but socially, they would still be mavericks today. You know, when you read about how they lived their lives, they were so, this was the 1940s and 1950s, they were unbelievably free. And there's a, paint, a picture of Grace Hardigan where she's standing on the roof of the loft she shared with Al Leslie. I don't know if you remember that one. She's wearing a man's jacket and work boots. Oh, and no, I have to It's look so up. great because she could be living in Brooklyn today. 
No question about it. You know, there's that is not, if you showed anyone that picture, you would not say, oh, yeah, that's a woman in 1950. It's a woman in 2018. They were so advanced. And I think um, for readers today to be introduced to them, it really gives you courage, men and women, because it's such an exciting place to be to create art. And the other thing that I came that came for me out of writing this book is how important art is. I don't know in Australia if it's the case, but in the States, a lot of schools don't even teach art anymore. And um, it's really not part of people's existence. And that's so tragic because you need it. You need the sustenance that art provides in order to be a healthy society and in order to be a healthy individual, to have that what, what Elaine de Kooning called the wordless part of your brain, you know, to activate that. And I think that um, this book shows how important that is because they were living through really traumatic times, the Depression, World War II, Hiroshima, right, McCarthy era. And yet they were able to soldier on because they had this outlet, which was this creative outlet where they could go into themselves and sort of find sanity, you know, and find something deeper than the momentary you know, hysteria that they were living through. And good God, I mean, today it's not momentary, it's by the second. Mm -hmm. So I think that our society really needs the nutrients that art provides. And I I fear that we don't get it. Imagine all the artists that aren't, or all the people with this talent that aren't becoming artists because they don't know how or it's not valued anymore. We don't have a vision of how that could be. Like all the paintings we're losing, all the... The beauty in things Mm -hmm. and also reflecting the world back to us. Exactly. Like seeing today, you know, what, how artists responded to war or even seeing how artists are already responding to the political climate. Yes. Like you go also, and then you get to see history repeating itself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I went and saw the show about conspiracy at the Met Breuer Mm -hmm. and you look at painting, you know, works done in the 50s and you you know, flash and you think they could be made yesterday. Yes, I know. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's so important because there are different ways of writing history and art is one of them. And that chapter, I fear, is kind of missing. Although, you know, it's, there are people working. It's just, artists will always work. It's just the audience that's has to be trained to appreciate art, has to be introduced to it, you know, as children and teenagers. And uh, it's, but it, it, that, is, that is one of the actual main points that I hope people get from this book is how important art is, not just for the people creating it, but for us as a greater society. I think they will. Good. But to your point about supporting artists, that post-World War One, or correct me if it was post-World War Two, when the government, the Federal Arts yes. Project was yes. born, reading about this and... There were over 500 artists given work mm-hmm. at this point. Can you talk about what years they were and also how important that was to give us yeah. the artists that changed the, you know, the, what is it, 20th century? Yes, yeah. yes. No, it was it was absolutely critical and it's amazing. Um, it was the fifth year of the Depression, so I guess it was the mid-30s. And Franklin Roosevelt was president and he was trying, you know, there were pockets of poverty everywhere. And so there were a lot of make work projects. And someone said to him, well, you know, artists don't have any work. And he said, well, I guess some building somewhere needs painting, you know. And with that, with that concession, really, I mean, that moment, this kind of revolution, the seed was planted because 
artists, American artists previously, very few had been taken seriously as professional artists. And most of them reflected European traditions. But the people in the WPA were really interesting because they were immigrants or the children of kind of working class people, people like Lee. And they would be given a check for $26 a week and they'd paint murals or they would um, do works that were uh, assigned to them and then hung in libraries and things like that. They weren't great works of art. You know, some of them were, but mostly they were just work. But what it did was it created a community of artists because every week when they'd go to collect their checks, they would see how many other artists there were in New York. They didn't really know each other before that. And in this line, this queue to get their paycheck would be men and women. And so for the first time in American history, men and women were given the dignity of being considered professional artists as a group. And so that consciousness was actually born there. And even when the WPA, which it lasted until I think it was 1939, the, the money started being diverted to the buildup for war because though the United States hadn't been, uh, hadn't entered the war yet, the government started financing weaponry basically to give to allies and things. And um, so, so the artists though, that community stayed together because they were all friends and they had coalesced and they realized that they were all in Manhattan. They all had the same kind of artistic concerns, you know, where do we go from here? And, and they stayed together. And that's why there was no inequality among men and women from the very beginning, because that began on the project when men and women were given the same pen, paycheck, both considered professional artists and both awarded the same kind of respect. And it was really a, a great foundation. I mean, can you imagine that happening today? It would be so exciting. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Can you imagine? I know, it'd be thrilling. Also, how our cities could be transformed. I know, exactly. Exactly. I mean, in, in cities, Some I just came back from Seattle, and they've got a wonderful program of, of art in the city where new construction has to have a certain percentage devoted to art. But wouldn't it be great if... Those were those are those are already established artists. Wouldn't it be great if newly, you know, sort of arising artists were given an opportunity to paint murals or do installations, video installations, or you know, video paintings on walls or something? I mean, it'd be fun. It would be great for everyone. I know. If, well, we're in a yeah. trying yeah, political yeah, yeah, time, yeah, yeah. so let's hope someday. Uh, hope for that. Um, You've written many nonfiction mm -hmm. books, mm -hmm. and can you tell us a bit about how, you know, what was the last one you did before, mm -hmm. and then how that kind of bled into this one, mm -hmm. if it did? Yeah, the the book I finished, the book I wrote before Ninth Street Women was called Love and Capital, and it was a story of Carl and Jenny Marks and the Marks family, basically amid the revolution in the 19th century that became communism and Marxism. And what I do in all of my books is I try to take a period that people say have been written to death. When I started the Marx book, people said, why do we need another book on Karl Marx? And what I, I just shift the story. If you think of a story as a, as the moon, there's this, the side of the moon that's lit. Mm -hmm. And then there's the dark side of the moon. And that's usually the woman's side of the story because in history, they rarely, that rare, that's rarely told. And so with Marx, I mean, even though there were libraries of books about Karl Marx, no one had done the story of his family. And when you embed that man, first of all, you give him a body and not just a head. He's not just an intellect. Oh, yeah. And you embed him with his family. It's an entirely different story. And you really understand where Marxism comes from. And I, I think he becomes, 
human and his philosophy becomes, you know, a sociology, a kind of a sociological system as opposed to an economic system or a philosophical system that's so difficult and unapproachable and kind of scary. And so with the abstract expressionist period, I did the same thing. It's another period of revolution, but it's an aesthetic revolution that's been told through the lens of the men's story. So I went back to my moon and went to the dark side and there were these women. And it's not either or, it's not you tell the men's story or you tell the women's story. One doesn't have to rob the other. You know, it's only when you tell both sides, only when you have the full moon, do you know what the real story was of that period. And it's so much richer and so much more fun. And and I think that that can happen so many times in various periods of history because uh, any time a revolution occurs, you know, men are always the actors. Women are on the sidelines. But in fact... That's only because that's the story we've been told. When you dig in a little bit, you find that there are women right in the heart of it. And when you insert them in their place, it it becomes really uh, a much broader and a much more inspirational story. And so that's sort of the linkage between the abstract expressionist period and the 19th century economic and sociological revolution of Karl Marx's time. Oh, I love that. I'm never going to think of the moon in the same no. <laughs> way. I'm going to be like, what's on the dark side? Oh, that is so beautiful. I think that's the, the hopeful yeah. and perfect place to end. Uh, I think everyone's going to kind of race out and just relish your book. Thank you so much. No, it's really been my pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you loved this episode. My big takeaway was that, gosh, I wish I'd known about these women when I was 14, 15 and deciding what to do with my life. I think I would have loved to have had them as role models and maybe I'd made, I would have made some different choices as to what to study and what to become. And I think to the point, you know, we made throughout that We need to rewrite history to include the women that have been so pivotal and maybe they can help shape and change and improve other women's lives. Let me know what you think. Of course, you can follow along on Instagram and on Twitter, and that's at Lit Up Show. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.